Half Price Horror. Hello and welcome to Half Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at the local Half Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at X from 2022, written and directed by Ty West. West is part of a whole group of independent horror directors, writers, editors, and actors who all kind of began to cohere together into a movement in the late 2000s. You've probably heard of a lot of them, here and elsewhere. Guys like David Bruckner, who made The Signal and The Ritual, and Adam Wingard, who made Your Next and The Guest, and the directing team Radio Silence, who are out there making the new generation of Scream movies, as well as, to a looser extent, guys like Adam Green and Mark Duplass. Their goal was to go out and make the kind of movies Hollywood didn't let people make in the wake of 1998's deal between the National Organization of Theater Owners and the federal government to more strictly enforce age guidelines for R-rated movies. We talked about that during the Scream 3 episode. And to find alternative distribution channels that would let them create intense and often gory horror movies that still said something very real about the human condition. And as the rise of streaming allowed them to bypass the MPAA almost entirely and go straight to their target audience, their stars began to rise. That's not to say these movies were an easy sell, though. Screenwriter C. Robert Cargill on the podcast Junk Food Cinema has mentioned on more than one occasion that West was considering retiring from filmmaking entirely after his 2016 film In a Valley of Violence due to the difficulty of securing funding and editorial freedom for controversial films. He'd done several horror movies, The House of the Devil, The Innkeepers, and Sacrament, but the closer he got to touching on real social commentary, the harder it became. Luckily for him, the independent production company A24 has kind of spent the last decade making intense arthouse horror their business model. They made Hereditary, which we covered all the way back in our second episode, but they've also put out films like Men, Everything Everywhere All at Once, Bodies, 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 The Green Knight, Lamb, Saint Maud, The Lighthouse, Midsommar, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, It Comes at Night, The Black Coat's Daughter, Green Room, The Lobster, The Witch, Ex Machina, Under the Skin. Basically, if you've heard people talking about it in hushed tones in the lobby or in a coffeehouse afterwards, A24 made it. And even though the tone of X is consciously and almost ostentatiously exploitative, it fits in with the A24 arthouse aesthetic surprisingly well. With funding secured, all West had to do was line up a plan for filming during the COVID pandemic. Although production had opened up in the wake of the COVID vaccine becoming available, there were still very rigid guidelines regarding quarantine, vaccination, and masking while not on camera. And find a cast who is willing to appear in a slasher movie about porn stars. Oh, yes, did I mention this is a slasher movie about porn stars? Because it is, and if you're somewhat sensitive to the discussion of sex and sexual politics, this is probably a good place to tap out. X is very much about the way sexuality is construed and constructed by mainstream society and what happens to those people who decide to live outside of those strictures and forge their own path. In fact, let's just get a little bit of the background out of the way right now. There are two major historical developments that led to the environment of 1979 where X is set, and they both begin in the 1950s. 
Now, I can and will deliver a lengthy rant to anyone who'll sit still long enough to listen about the ways that baby boomers conflated their own generational journey into adulthood during the 60s and 70s with America's post-war struggles over social justice and progressivism, causing them to ignore any evidence of the fight for racial or sexual equality and personal freedoms that happened before 1960 and replace it in their collective heads with old Ozzy and Harriet reruns. But suffice it to say that the two big things that made the sexual liberation of the 70s possible were, one, the invention of the birth control pill, which began its development in 1951, even though it wasn't approved as a contraceptive until 1961, and even then it couldn't be provided to unmarried women in all 50 states until the Supreme Court finally slapped down the blue noses for good in 1972. I hope it's for good. And two, the Kinsey Reports, which were published in 1948 and 1953 as a compilation of confidential research into human sexuality, and which revealed that there was and had always been a vast disconnect between the conventional expectations of sexual behavior in society and the way human beings actually behaved. Most people have sex before marriage. Sex outside of marriage is pretty common. Homosexuality is actually fairly conventional and normal, setting aside the pejorative usage of that word and using it in a strictly statistical sense. In short, everyone's a hypocrite about sex and always has been. These two things combined, along with Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique, which was published in 1963, led to a major shift in the national conversation about sex. Suddenly it became possible to think about sex without thinking about babies, and increasingly it became obvious that people enjoyed sex a lot and wanted to have more of it. This led to the era known as porno chic, where adult movies became daring and fashionable to a generation just beginning to explore its own sexual awakening. Films like Deep Throat with Linda Lovelace infiltrated the cultural conversation so thoroughly that FBI associate director Mark Felt used it as a code name when informing on Nixon to the Washington Post, meaning that every history book ever published about America from now on will contain a reference to a famous porn star. For much of the 70s, this was seen as liberating for women a freedom from the restrictions of getting married, settling down, and pumping out kids. And it wasn't until the 80s that feminists began to argue that the same old patriarchal structure was using sexual liberation as a means of control in the same ways they once used sexual strictures. That is to say, the responsibility for sex was still placed on the woman. It was still her job to take the pill. She was not allowed to say no now that they had consequence-free sex. Men still were getting everything they wanted, and women still had to bear all of the burdens. That, combined with the increasing fear of sexually transmitted diseases like AIDS, put an end to a lot of the social conversation, even though porn itself became much more popular, thanks to the rise of home media giving people an opportunity to watch in private instead of in an adult movie theater. Which was kind of a relief to the industry in many ways, because adult movie theaters were getting fewer and further between. The MPAA never trademarked its X rating, which denoted content not suitable for anyone under the age of 17, and the porn industry co-opted it as a result. By the time the 70s rolled around, it had become synonymous with pornographic movies, and no theater that showed other films would show an X-rated movie, and vice versa. Which meant that if you couldn't make your theater profitable showing only adult movies, you went out of business. Or if you ran afoul of several laws designed to put said theaters out of business, which wasn't uncommon in the era. 
With all that background, and knowing that X is set in 1979 at exactly the tipping point between all these different and competing social poles, let's now get into the cast. Because this cast had to not just be willing to portray pornographic actors in a tribute to the golden age of adult film, which included simulating sex in front of the cameras, they also had to be willing to do a gory horror movie that was a tribute to the golden age of slasher movies. There's obviously a deep parallel between the pornographic industry and the horror film genre. Both of them traditionally ignore the Hollywood establishment and are made by independent crews with unknown casts. Both of them are so enormously profitable that they practically bankroll their supposedly more legitimate and artistic counterparts. Both of them tackle social taboos in a direct and unflinching manner that shocks and horrifies the mainstream. Both of them have undergone periodic attempts at suppression and censorship that always fail because secretly everybody loves them. And most saliently for X, both of them can be very tricky to get out of without being pigeonholed as solely someone who works in that particular field. This was one other thing that was very famous about Deep Throat. Linda Lovelace, the woman who became famous for her lead performance in it, could not get any acting jobs outside of porn and eventually made her living doing speaking engagements for anti-pornography crusaders about the exploitative conditions under which the movie was made. Not that I don't believe her, I am fully convinced that there was horrific exploitation going on during the filming of Deep Throat, but the use of her story by the religious right was no less disgusting in its own way. Nobody cared enough about Linda Lovelace as a person, only about what she could do for them. Which is hugely relevant to this story and its protagonist, Maxine Minx. Speaking of... See, I told you I was getting to the cast. She is played here by Mia Goth, who also plays Pearl, the elderly woman whose silence hides a deep and terrifying rage. Goth's first feature film role was in the Lars von Trier arthouse horror movie Nymphomaniac Volume 2. Von Trier tends to make horror movies so arthouse that a lot of people don't even qualify them as horror. But given that Goth's role in the film is to have sex with a man in front of the woman he's just beaten, I think it counts. Goth went on to do sci-fi and horror films like A Cure for Wellness, High Life, and the remake of Suspiria that came out in 2018, but her dual role in X elevated her stardom to a whole other level, and she's now considered an Oscar-worthy actor even if there was never any way a film like X, or its prequel Pearl, which also came out in 2022, was going to be considered for something so prestigious. The other members of the doomed porn production cast and crew are Jenna Ortega as Lorraine. We've talked about her before when discussing 2022 Scream, but she has had a hell of a couple of years, with Scream, X, Studio 666, and the Netflix series Wednesday all happening in 2022, and Scream 6 hitting at the beginning of 2023. Brittany Snow is Bobby Lynn, who's playing a bit against type here as she's better known for her comedies, including all three Pitch Perfect movies, but who was in 2008's Prom Night remake as well as 2012's Would You Rather. Scott Miscuddy, aka Kid Cuddy, as Jackson. He's perhaps better known as a musician and music producer, but he's done some character roles in other film and television productions. Martin Henderson as Wayne, who horror fans will probably recognize from his role as Noah in 2002's Shot Across the Bow in the J-horror remake craze The Ring, and Owen Campbell as RJ, who I have to imagine is named after RJ McCready because you can't get through a horror film made in the last 30 years without at least one reference to John Carpenter's The Thing. 
Campbell has made something of a reputation for himself in recent years as the go-to actor for this kind of arthouse horror, with roles in this, Candyland, The Strange Ones, Super Dark Times, Depraved, and My Heart Can't Beat Unless You Tell It To. I'd call him a standout performer here, but honestly no one can keep up with Mia Goth in this movie, and that's not a criticism of any other actor. She's just that fearless. And last but certainly not least, Stephen Yuri plays Howard, Pearl's husband and co-conspirator in Murder. This Australian actor has taken full advantage of the exploitation boom of the 80s that transformed into a genuine genre film industry, popping up in Hercules, Xena, two of the three Lord of the Rings and two of the three Hobbit movies, Mortal Engines, and Ash vs. the Evil Dead in a variety of smaller roles. X is almost certainly his signature part, though. And with that, and another reminder of those trigger warnings for sexual content in addition to gore, let's dive in. We begin with one of those absolutely perfect opening shots, the kind of thing that really sets the tone for the whole movie in the first few seconds. It's a view of a Texas farmhouse framed in the 1.37 to 1 aspect ratio used for 16mm film back in the 70s. You can even see slight curves in the corners, as though you're viewing a single frame of film, and it calls to mind the open countryside vistas of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Although, I'm sure West cursed the New Zealand weather constantly for giving him clouds instead of that golden glowing sunlight that Toby Hooper found so effortlessly. Then, as a police car pulls into view, the camera moves forward, and we realize the darkness on the edges of the frame were in fact a pair of barn doors blocking our full view of the screen as we emerge into 2022 widescreen aspect ratio and the movie begins. A black sheriff, played by character actor James Galen, he's been in a lot of Power Rangers stuff, gets out of the cop car and examines a corpse lying in the road under a bloody sheet. He then walks across a blood-stained porch into the farmhouse, where another covered body lies in the entryway, and a preacher's sermon blares loudly on the TV in the next room. This televangelist is played by Simon Prast, and we zoom in on the screen as he tells his congregation that his own daughter has fallen victim to the temptations of sin and entered the company of perverts and swindlers. It's a pretty clear sign to the audience that they need to keep an eye out for a character who's this man's daughter. As the sheriff goes down into the cellar and is shown a sight even more horrific than what was upstairs, we then jump back 24 hours to Mia Goth's Maxine, snorting coke in the dressing room of a strip club and telling herself, you're a fucking sex symbol, before her boyfriend slash manager slash producer Wayne comes to get her for the porn shoot they have planned. And I think that in order to really and truly understand what I mean when I say Mia Goth is a fearlessly intense performer who throws herself into her roles, you have to first watch this scene with her husky southern snarl and her bright blue eyeshadow and her dead-eyed stare, then look up some interviews and watch this woman with this chirpy British accent saying, Oh yes, Ty is just a really good director and he wrote such an interesting part. It's like you're seeing a different woman entirely. And a word on Wayne before we move any further. When I talk about how the 80s was the feminist backlash to the porn industry's exploitation of women, guys like Wayne are exactly the kind of guy I'm talking about. 
It becomes clear in the first few minutes that he's a hustler who likes to surround himself with much younger women who don't have a whole lot of life experience and sell them a version of events where their participation in low-budget porn that he makes all the money off of is the beginning of a journey to international megastardom, and the best thing they can do for their own future is to listen to his guidance and advice rather than any misgivings they might have. He's not a mean man, and in fact, he might even believe a lot of what he's saying. The real version of this character would probably be much more physically and emotionally abusive. But in the end, the women he's employing are important to him only as far as they're useful to him, and he's accustomed to discarding them for someone younger and fresher and more naive. And Henderson does a great job of portraying that slightly callous charm right from the get-go. Maxine, Platinum Blonde Starlet Bobby Lynn, and Wayne head out to a van, which is labeled Plowing Service, an obvious joke that only becomes more obvious when you remember they're driving around Houston, Texas, and leave the strip club behind to the tune of Mungo Jerry's In the Summertime, and a cheesy American flag-themed caption of 1979, so big and bold and over the top that you could be forgiven for thinking it was the title card. We don't get the title card until the end. This is a film that has a lot, a lot, a lot of needle drops, by the way. In the Summertime isn't even the third most famous song we're going to hear. Already in the van, as they drive out to the countryside and pass out scripts, is Jackson, the male lead, RJ, the cameraman, and Lorraine, the mic operator and RJ's girlfriend. They all banter excitedly about the fame and fortune they hope the movie will bring to them, with Maxine in particular telling Wayne that she wants everyone in the world to know her name. That's a moment that hits harder, I think, after knowing that the prequel is about a young Pearl and her own dreams of the 1918 version of superstardom. Dreams that were dashed and denied and decayed until they left behind the old and frustrated woman we're going to meet. Pearl never got off that farm. She never got any of her dreams. And this story is now the intersection of these two identical people on two identical paths, each seeing exactly what they hate about themselves in the other. Which does not bode well for Maxine in Maxine, which will arrive sometime later this year. That's Maxine with three X's. The group stops off to pick up supplies, distracting the clerk while they film some pickup shots of Jackson at the gas pump, and RJ expounds on his beliefs that pornographic films can be true works of art. He says, I actually plan on experimenting a lot with the edit, giving it a certain sense of the avant-garde like they're doing in France. It's classier that way, and it's a good trick to disguise the low budget. Given some of the truly outrageous editing choices in this movie, I half expected a Jim Halpert take to camera after that line. Oh, and the clerk at the gas station has on a TV playing the exact same televangelist. I get that they're trying to emphasize the impending arrival of the moral majority and the anti-pornography panic that's going to grip America under Reagan, but it did test credulity a little for me. This was pre-cable and pre-24-7 television. There was no way any TV preacher would be on the air non-stop in 1979. Usually back then, guys like this got an hour on Sundays and did the rest of their work live in the form of barnstorming revival tours, like Marjo Gortner. After a little more banter, during which it's made clear that Wayne is not doing well financially due to some tax troubles and is counting on this film to get his club out of the red, they drive past a car accident involving a collision with a cow, I'm tempted to make a Rob Zombie Halloween 2 reference, but it's the wrong state, and out to a farm way out in the middle of nowhere. 
It's clearly evoking Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but again, the light doesn't quite cooperate, making it clear that this isn't Texas in the same way that the Friday the 13th remake couldn't quite hide the fact that it was Texas. There is just a quality to that Texas sunshine that can't be disguised or replicated, a lesson I hope every filmmaker remembers. Wayne has theoretically made arrangements to rent out the guest house on the property, but when he's greeted by an old man with a shotgun, it's clear that maybe he didn't get things nailed down quite as much as he hoped. The others, meanwhile, wait out in the van, and while Bobby Lynn and Jackson make out, Lorraine expresses a few concerns about getting her start doing sound for a porn shoot, and RJ shuts her down cold by calling her a prude. It's clear that he likes being the leader in their relationship and expects her to be a follower, something that's going to come back later on. Maxine sees a man with a shotgun emerging onto the porch and goes into the glove compartment for Wayne's revolver, but Howard the old man finally recalls their arrangement and tells him it's fine, the shotgun wasn't even loaded. Wayne chuckles and replies that he keeps an unloaded gun in the car to scare people too. This is, of course, the fabled reverse Chekhov's gun technique, rarely attempted in modern cinema. Howard leads the group to the guest house, while Pearl watches from the upstairs window in the main house. And Howard and Pearl are, we should mention now, grotesquely old. And I mean that in the sense of they are deliberately and consciously made up to look not just elderly, but hideously old caricatures of the ravages of age that go past insensitive and out beyond mean into the realms of campy. I'll admit, when I first saw this film, all of last night when I watched it for this podcast, I thought the movie was being ageist, and to a certain extent it is, but it's essentially parodying ageism, and you can't parody something without to some degree embodying it. Most of the main characters are young, but more than that, they see their youth and beauty as assets to be leveraged in the pursuit of wealth and fame so that they can escape the daily grind of capitalism and live out a comfortable existence once they get beyond the point where those assets still have value. Their worst fear is to imagine themselves old and used up and trapped on some dilapidated farm out in the middle of nowhere with bodies too ancient even to fuck properly, and Pearl and Howard are supposed to be these exaggerated caricatures of their darkly imagined futures and not real people in their own right. That's not to say that they're imaginary and this is all just happening in Maxine's head while she kills the cast and crew or anything, but it's a film that's happening on a very allegorical level. We're supposed to recognize that these are fears made manifest, and they're the shallow fears of people who are young and callow, and maybe haven't had the life experience to understand what age brings as well as what it takes away. They're sympathetic characters, but they're also just kind of pathetic, too. The guesthouse seems to be to everyone's liking, and I assume this story must be taking place pretty early in the spring or everyone would be sweating like pigs in the Texas heat, but there's a further confrontation. Jackson, a Vietnam vet, isn't exactly thrilled with the attitude of the man who's been threatening them with violence, and Howard is none too happy to find six people on his property instead of just a vacationing couple. But a little extra money smoothed things over, and once Howard leaves, they get to work making porn. And I choose to believe that Ty West is making a deliberate social commentary here, because the porn is literally tamer than any number of things you could accidentally see on your Twitter feed. You get a little bit of Britney Snow's bared breasts, but there's nothing below the waist and certainly no penetration. And that's because, despite the title, X is rated R, and the MPAA is perfectly happy to give an R rating to a film that has someone stabbed through the eyes with a pitchfork on camera, um, spoilers, 
But God forbid anyone watching this blood-soaked slasher movie should ever see a human penis in full light. Horror and porn share a lot in common, as I said, but violence has always been more acceptable to the average American censor than sex, and that's a hypocrisy that means X is unable to do one of the two things it's here for. And I do not think it's a coincidence that the two villains of the film are a pair of ancient, judgmental prudes who secretly lust after all of the main cast, but they can't fuck anymore, and so they sublimate their desire for sex into acts of vicious, murderous violence against the next generation who has everything they covet. This is a movie about how censorship is a form of violence, make no mistake. Well, Jackson and Bobby Lynn fuck, Maxine wanders down to the pond and decides to go skinny dipping. She takes off her clothes and dives in, not seeing the alligator in the reeds at the far edge of the murky waters, or Pearl, who's followed her down to the pond and is watching her with a mix of voyeuristic lust and seething envy. Houston would be about the western edge of gator territory, but it checks out. The movie then intercuts between the aftermath of the sex scene, where Wayne puts RJ's hand on his crotch to show him how effective the filming was, and Maxine out in the open water with the gator slowly swimming towards her. The editing gives it a sense of the avant-garde, like they're doing in France. I will say, though, that the overhead drone shots of Maxine swimming back to the dock as the alligator closes the distance between them are utterly goddamn harrowing, and Ty West knows how to shoot tension like nobody's business. You do not breathe until she's out of the water and back up on the dock, even when watching this movie the second time. On her way back to the guesthouse, Maxine gets flagged down by Pearl, who beckons her to the main house for a glass of lemonade. Awkwardly and hesitantly, Maxine comes inside, downing her drink as fast as humanly possible in an effort to avoid a lengthy conversation with the old woman, as Jackson and Bobby Lynn shoot some footage of the two of them sharing a little lemonade of their own. That's not a euphemism for anything, they just drink lemonade together and talk about giving Jackson's character a ride back to town to get someone to fix his van. Because Wayne's big idea for a movie is pretty much just a live-action version of the old jokes people used to tell about the traveling salesman and the farmer's daughter back in the day. It's kind of hokey, and purposefully so, even if the repeated references in the film within a film to Daddy getting angry become incredibly uncomfortable when they're juxtaposed with Pearl leching on Maxine in Howard's absence. Pearl tells Maxine that she was a dancer once, with her own dreams of fame and glory that were taken away by the World Wars and the Great Depression. Obviously, the movie Pearl puts a different spin on this conversation. And the two of them look into the mirror together, each one seeing themselves in the other, before Howard comes back and Maxine uses the excuse to flee. She runs practically right into Wayne in the cheapest jump scare in the whole movie, and he brings the group down to the barn to shoot Maxine's scenes with Jackson but not before she does a bump of coke, looks herself in the mirror, and says, I will not accept a life I do not deserve. She has the same intensity as Pearl. It just hasn't translated into the same activities. Yet. The group shoots Maxine's seduction by Jackson, and I have no idea at all how these scenes are lit. There's not nearly enough ambient light, and nobody is using any artificial lighting at all. Anyway. Maxine gives off an intense, 
radiant charisma during their sex scene. And this is exactly what I mean when I say that Mia Goth delivers an amazingly fearless performance. She has to be intensely on emotionally when they're shooting these sex scenes, dead-eyed and hollowed when she's by herself staring into the mirror, childlike and vulnerable when she's with Pearl, playfully petulant when she's around Wayne, and on top of all that, she's got to have Pearl's locked-off silence and visceral rage, and that's all just in this movie. It's a tour de force performance, and I'm writing this on the night of the Oscars and she wasn't even nominated. It's a shame. Pearl gets made up and sneaks down to watch the sex scenes, by the way. Nobody notices, which is a little hard to credit, but hey, I've seen less believable things in a movie. That night, Pearl asks Howard to make love to her, but he's concerned that his heart can't take the physical strain of sex, and this couple probably hasn't thought about anything but straight missionary since they first hit puberty. Pearl is forced to go to bed frustrated, and so is Howard, for that matter. He's clearly able to perform below the waist, it's just his heart that's the problem. Over at the guest house, Maxine finally confronts Lorraine about her silent and apparently judgmental attitude, and Lorraine gives in and asks all the questions she's been holding in about how these people can have sex with strangers on camera without it affecting their real-life relationships. Bobby Lynn is casually and non-exclusively dating Jackson, and we already knew that Maxine was dating Wayne, and RJ is perfectly happy to preach the gospel of non-monogamy and open-mindedness and free love. And their answers seem to mollify Lorraine, for the moment at least. Then we get a rendition of Landslide, as Ty West gives us the single most French edit of the whole film. We suddenly go split-screen, and he juxtaposes images of Pearl and Howard and Lorraine and RJ and Maxine and creepy dolls and makeup and more guitar playing, and it's just so overtly screaming, look, 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 this is a movie, that I didn't know whether it was supposed to be intentionally comedic or not. I just do not know what to make of this sequence, even on the second viewing, and I think if I could have five minutes to talk with Ty West, the very first thing out of my mouth would be, so the landslide scene. What was the deal with that? Because both times we hit it, I wasn't just thrown out of the film, but violently ejected from it. Which is a shame, because the very second the song stops, we get the best scene of the whole movie. Lorraine, having had a whole montage to think about what everyone was saying, tells the group she wants to do a scene in the movie. A sex scene. With Jackson. She wants to see what all the fuss is about. And I mean, it couldn't be more obvious that they want us to think that she's the preacher's daughter mentioned in the beginning, so it makes sense that she wouldn't know. Except that she's not, precisely because she's too obvious a choice for it, which kind of makes the scene a little weirder on second viewing. And Owen Campbell really shines here as the shittiest of shitty boyfriends. All his smug, obnoxious paternalism towards his girlfriend freezes up in a sneering, patronizing disdain as he tries his best to shut down the idea cold, using as much I-know-more-about-film-theory-than-you-do-and-it-wouldn't-make-sense-to-add-you-into-this-story borrowed authority as he can muster, when it's perfectly clear that his real issue is that his stance on non-monogamy and free love and open-mindedness is plenty for me, but none for thee. And when Lorraine throws his when-did-you-become-such-a-prude line right back at him, he has no answer. Now, it should be said, I am a big believer in communication in open relationships, and Lorraine probably could have handled this a bit more sensitively than she did. Making the announcement right in front of the group did put RJ on the spot a little, and there's no denying it. But communication is a two-way street, and it's immediately clear, again, 
thanks to Owen Campbell, who puts his defensiveness right on his immensely expressive face, that RJ is not willing to communicate his feelings openly or honestly, and this conversation would have had the same outcome no matter what Lorraine said or how she said it, because he's deep down a very insecure guy who can't imagine Lorraine wanting to be with him if she had literally any other options, and who cannot handle emotionally the idea of her having any involvement with another man. There was no way for Lorraine to avoid this confrontation, and honestly, had this been a movie without a pair of serial killers lurking patiently in wait for the third act, this would probably have been the beginning of a very nasty breakup. As it is, Wayne intervenes, calling RJ outside for a private conversation in which he levels with the young man and tells him that trying to pull rank on his girlfriend is only going to end with her cutting him out of her life. RJ makes the mistake of saying that Lorraine isn't like the others, she's a good girl. And Wayne makes it clear that he might be a shitty hustler and a user and kind of a low-grade scumbag, but he will not tolerate anyone disrespecting sex workers. If Lorraine wants to do this, Wayne's going to back her all the way and RJ just needs to suck it up and deal because there's nothing wrong with it and unlike RJ, he meant every word of what he said earlier. RJ films the scene, which is, again, incredibly tame, and I'm okay with that, because Jenna Ortega didn't want to appear nude, and I'm very glad her choices were respected by the cast and crew. Then he goes and sobs in the bathtub because he feels emasculated by the sight of his girlfriend having sex with another man. A man who, it's implied, is much better endowed and much more skilled in bed than he is. He decides to leave in a petulant tantrum, and honestly I'm kind of bummed that this is where the movie kicks into full-on slasher, because I really wanted to see more of this storyline. Owen Campbell really gives his shitty boyfriend character 200%, Ty West is clearly pro-sex worker, Jenna Ortega is getting some fantastic material to work with, and I was like, oh, wait, no, we don't get to follow any of this? But yes, as he tries to drive off, to the tune of Don't Fear the Reaper, ironic music choice of horror movies since 1978, he finds Pearl standing out in the middle of the road, blocking his path. He gets out to try to bring her back to the house, and instead, she tries to take off her clothes and embrace him, and when he acts physically repulsed by the thought of sex with someone so old, she stabs him right in the neck with a very sharp kitchen knife. And then stabs him again, and again and 21 more times after that, until his throat is a ruined mess and the headlights are stained blood red with gore, giving the scene an eerie giallo look. And then she dances, like in her old pictures, remembering a happier time when she had other ways to feel alive. As I say, I cannot imagine anyone but Mia Goth committing this hard to a performance. After it's over, she steals the keys out of the van and leaves. Lorraine wakes up to find RJ missing, and she's immediately worried. She enlists Wayne's help in finding him, and Wayne leaves the guest house in nothing but his underwear, which is something I have a very hard time believing, because Wayne's a Texan, and Texans don't love their cowboy boots because they're addicted to the country and western fashion aesthetic. They like them because there are a ton of venomous snakes and insects and arachnids in Texas, particularly out in the countryside, and you need a boot with thick leather and hard soles to keep from getting bitten. Or, you know, to keep from stepping on a nail in the barn, which is what happens to Wayne practically seconds later in a gnarly, unpleasant, and entirely avoidable moment. Howard comes out of the house, ostensibly looking for Pearl, and Lorraine enlists his help in looking for RJ. He sends her down to the basement for a flashlight, and he immediately locks her in with what turns out to be the corpse of the last guy who came to the farm. 
it is already badly decayed. It's exceedingly gross. Back in the barn, a limping Wayne hears a noise coming from the far wall, which has three holes in it, and if you haven't heard this particular traveling salesman joke, there's a Mr. Show sketch that makes a lot of hay out of it, but suffice to say Wayne should have known to keep clear. Instead, he tries looking through them, and a pitchfork goes through the three precisely spaced gaps and straight into his eyes, killing him. Pearl comes inside and covers his body up with hay using that exact same pitchfork, and we're essentially down to three meaningful survivors already. Jackson wakes up, his PTSD giving him difficulties staying asleep, and it's hinted he may have heard Lorraine's faint and distant screams, and he goes to get some milk from the fridge. There's a missing person's notice on the milk carton for the corpse in the basement, which has been the subject of much disdain from history nerds who point out that they didn't do that in 1979, and even when they did, it was for kids and not adults. But I can't say it bothered me nearly as much as the sliding doors version of Landslide. This means he's awake when Howard comes by asking for help and searching for his wife. Jackson, who is still entirely nude, is shown in silhouette from the front this time, which is the closest you come to seeing male nudity in this movie. There's something odd about the way his penis moves, though, and I don't know if it was just that he was deliberately wiggling in order to emphasize his implied size, or he used a prosthetic the way some actors do, but it looked distractingly unreal. I could find no further information on this scene online, though, and I think it would be rude to fixate on it. Jackson gets, again, not nearly enough, clothes on, and goes to help look around the pond to make sure old Pearl hasn't been attacked by gators. While he's gone, Pearl sneaks into the guest house and climbs into bed with Maxine. Maxine, who appears to be a very heavy sleeper, does not notice this, nor does she notice Pearl caressing her with blood-stained hands and leaving smears of gore all over her body as Pearl touches the body she both wants to possess and wants to have. And I mean, look, on the one hand, I understand that this is a sequence that's all about narcissism, and the whole reason why Mia Goth is playing both Pearl and Maxine is we're not supposed to read this as a typical lesbian relationship, which means it doesn't fall into the typical evil gay tropes that we've become unfortunately used to in our horror media. That said, this is a movie about 70s porn, and the only queer relationship involves non-consensual touching on the part of the monstrous villain. We couldn't have had any gay sex between Jackson and Wayne? Anyway. While Pearl is lurching on the emphatically unconscious Maxine, Jackson searches around the pond and finds a VW Beetle that's been very deliberately sunk. He meets back up with Howard, who first berates him for teasing his elderly wife, and then shoots him, and so much for the I'm a Vietnam vet, I've seen combat subplot. It's kind of frustratingly un-Chekhov's gun. They bring it up and bring it up and bring it up, and it doesn't matter in the end because Jackson is utterly useless in the very short fight. I almost wish they'd come up with a different background for the character if they weren't going to make his marine training relevant at all in the end. Lorraine, meanwhile, roots around the basement for something she can use to break out. She finds an axe and chops open one of the panels of the door, but when she reaches for the latch, a returning Howard smashes her hand with the butt of his gun, breaking several fingers, and forces her back down into the cellar at rifle point. He's apparently saving her for Pearl, and he turns on the TV to the televangelist to drown out her screams of pain. Maxine finally wakes up and freaks out, sending Pearl fleeing. Bobby Lynn wakes up and pursues the old woman, while Maxine wakes herself up a little more with a bump of cocaine. 
Pearl winds up down by the dock, because we've had an alligator in this movie for almost 90 minutes now and nobody's been eaten by an alligator, and she winds up shoving Bobby Lynn into the water for a truly spectacular sequence that involves a head chomp and a death roll, and Toby Hooper would be so, so proud. Howard collects Pearl and tells her he's gotten her a Lorraine to have sex with, but she only wants Maxine, who's washing herself off, apparently without wondering what the source is of all the blood on her body, when the elderly couple return to the guest house to collect her. She hides under the bed and is forced to stay still and silent as the two of them lie on it, and Howard risks cardiac arrest to have sex with his wife one more time. And again, this is so exaggerated in its grotesquerie that it loops fully around and becomes camp, with every moan and thrust turned into a nightmarish parody of sex that tries so hard to insist that sex between old people is gross that it winds up insincere about it. I'm not sure how to feel about it even now, because it is problematic, and ageist, and exploitative, and uncomfortable, but at least it feels like it's trying to get the audience to recognize all those things, and I guess I have to give it that? In any event, while Howard and Pearl are screwing, Maxine crawls out from under the bed and across the floor to make her escape. She runs for the van, but finds that Pearl has slashed its tires, leaving it useless. Hearing Lorraine screams, she grabs the gun from the glove compartment and runs inside to free what is, at this point, the only other survivor of the massacre. But instead of showing some gratitude, Lorraine has decided she is 100% sick of all this bullshit and hates everyone who brought her here and involved her in it, and she goes sprinting for the door. And in a perfectly timed A-plus jump scare of all jump scares, she gets about six inches onto the porch before a gunshot from off-screen sends her tumbling to the ground, dead. Turns out Howard and Pearl are back, and they're about ready to tidy up any loose ends. Knowing that Maxine is still out there, and possibly heading off to notify the police, Howard decides to drag the bodies inside so he can claim self-defense if necessary. But wouldn't you know it, Chekhov's heart condition picks that moment to kick in, and the exertion of moving Lorraine's body causes him to collapse in cardiac arrest. He dies, and Maxine uses the opportunity to demand the keys to Howard's truck at gunpoint. Then Pearl and her past self, or Maxine and her future self, have a final confrontation as the preacher in the background screams and rants about taking control of one's own destiny rather than meekly surrendering to what fate had intended. Pearl tells Maxine she's never going to be anything more than a sex worker, and Maxine shouts, I'm a fucking star! The whole world is gonna know my name! before Chekhov's gun fails to go off as the revolver dry fires empty again and again. Pearl then grabs Howard's shotgun and fires, and although she misses, the kickback is enough to send her flying back through the screen door and shatters her hip where she placed the butt of the gun against it. Maxine walks right past her to the truck and drives it over the old woman's head as she leaves, just like in an old trauma film, and she does a bump of coke off her own hand as she makes her escape. And the next day, as the police examine the scene of carnage, the televangelist shows the crowd a picture of his wayward daughter. It's Maxine, unsurprisingly, and he says she's in the hands of the devil now. The police find RJ's camera, which they assume to contain shots of the murders like some kind of snuff film, as we finally get the title card, and the credits roll. In the theater, there was also a post-credits trailer for Pearl, but that movie's out now, and Maxine with three X's is on the horizon to close out the trilogy. 
And I feel like this is definitely a concept that's got three movies worth of subtext to it, with lots to say about youth and age and wasted potential and a lifetime of regret and the poisonous, insidious call of fame. I feel like I needed two viewings just to tune in on what West was talking about, and although I may need a few more to figure out what was going on with that landslide sequence, I can't say it wasn't impressive. By the way, the credits play out over Bad Case of Loving You by Robert Palmer, which would be our third major, major song. And will I hang on to this movie? Definitely. If nothing else, I can't wait to see it and Pearl and Maxine all together, reappraising it in light of the entire story. It has its issues, don't get me wrong, but they're the kind of issues you can wind up with when you're talking about a big and complex and emotional subject. And so I'm going to assume positive intent and allow it to have its problematic moments while I mull over all of the messages it's giving. And if you want to talk about the age of porno chic, split screens in cinema, or about anything else that came up on this podcast, you can find me on Twitter as at HalfHorror and on Tumblr and Letterboxd as HalfPriceHorror. My watch list on Letterboxd contains everything I plan to tackle in future episodes. If there's something you'd like to hear about, let me know. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash halfpricehorror and hear episodes a week early, and you can rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. And next time on Half Price Horror, well, we've managed to extend spooky season well into April, a pretty good record by anyone's standards. But it's time to put away the costumes, eat all that leftover candy, and blow out the candle on the jack-o'-lantern. Because next time, Halloween ends. See you then.